Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, live from Birmingham, England. That's not what they sound That's like here. That's not at all with how they sound. No, I'm Ben Rothenberg. She's Courtney Nguyen. We're Americans. Courtney, I will say, I've sort of, in my mind, mourned a little bit the loss of, like, accent diversity in the U.S. I think more and more of the country sounds kind of the same, and you can't hear somebody and be like, oh, you must be from Cleveland, or whatever. But here in Birmingham, I have no idea what anyone's saying. And so part of me enjoys that. that there still is this enclave of the first world, English-speaking natives, who speak this thing that's just unintelligible to me, more often than not. Your thoughts? I think you're selling the United States a little short there, Ben. I okay. think that the, we do obviously still have some pretty distinct regional accents. And, you know, New York, Boston, Chicago, the South... Um, New Orleans, uh, obviously you and I are from the coasts, like from pretty like uh, non-accented and transient cities. And tra- yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, but I mean, there's no real California accent. There's a California way that we speak, but uh, not so much accent. But and same in DC. But yeah, I mean, I think the really big thing is just that it's unintelligible. It's not <laughs> so much that like the oh, that's a really cool accent. I wish we had accents. It's just that like even. Our worst accents in the states. I'm. Pr- I don't know. I'm pretty inclined to say that people would understand them. Our worst urban accents. It's one thing to have somebody who's yes. like very much from a super super isolated region of like Louisiana Delta or like Appalachia, and they or like upper some... up uh, upstate New York, like super upstate rural New York is like can get pretty dicey. Having it being the second biggest city in the country and having it have people say things to you and just getting. Nothing. None of it is, is impressive. So we've braved that pretty admirably, and it's fun. And we have also seen a bunch of tennis uh, this week, and there were three tournaments this week, so we'll talk about them and how they lead up to Wimbledon, which is coming up sooner rather than later at this point, uh, the next Grand Slam, in this last ever uh, only two-week gap between the French Open and Wimbledon, because next year it goes to three, so... It's a end of an era. Uh, Courtney, what did you make of the first week of the grass season overall? I thought that it was interesting that the three people who came out with the titles are three people that you're probably going to end up keeping an eye on at Wimbledon. They're p- players who would have been like you know favorites for their respective tournaments anyway. You had Roger Federer winning Halle for the seventh time, um, nine straight times that he's played the tournament he's made the final there and pretty perfunctory performance from Roger I mean I don't think you know there wasn't too much drama really anywhere I mean he did come through in, in a bunch of tie breaks which is pretty good yep. won two tie breaks against Faya in the final won a tie break against Nishikori didn't realize he won that tie break that was weird um, but uh, yeah so obviously you know Roger will be confident coming out of uh, Halle yeah so that's Roger Grigor winning Queens was a great week for him and um, again just really showing that like he has matured into a legitimate player and I think that in a lot of ways that's what I see with with Dimitrov is just maturity in the way that he's playing his tennis and to come through against uh, Feliciano Lopez um, winning two tie breaks saving a match point coming back from a breakdown in the third um, that's all pretty good stuff so so props to Grigor and then Ana Ivanovic doing what a top seed is supposed to do which is win the tournament, and she did, and she looked great doing it. She 
playing really, really fine grass court tennis. Um, seems in a good spot mentally, I think. And the interesting thing about all three of those players is that these were wins that they needed to put Paris behind them. Because Ivanovic losing yeah. early to, to Safarova was disappointing. Dimitrov, obviously, first round to Karlovich, disappointing. And then Federer to Golbis in a disappointing way that he lost that match. So, you know, I think that that's, that's really my takeaway from this week, is that three players who really kind of laid an egg in Paris uh, look pretty good for Wimbledon. That's a great point, and I think it cuts both ways in that people, if you didn't do well in Paris, you have more time to rest up and be ready to make a good push in this first week of the grass season. I mean, even the finalists, the three, uh, Zagova Stritseva in Birmingham, Lopez in Queens, and Alejandro Faya, randomly enough, in Halle, none of them made second week of the French Open either. So these are players who were rested, who came in and took advantage of that. And then you have on the opposite end, someone like Rafa Nadal, who obviously played all the way through Sunday at the French Open, won the tournament, uh, had to go pretty quickly to Halle, although he got a few days off in between and then lost in quick straight sets to Dustin Brown and less than an hour. It was only the third time in his career Rafa has ever lost in less than an hour, and he does not do a whole lot of things in less than an hour. He plays plenty of sets that are longer than an hour. So um, it was striking, but at the same time, excusable. Although, I mean, just to get a little more on Rafa, I think that Rafa has shown once again that he is not anywhere near as much of a force to be reckoned with when he's on fresh new grass that plays really, really fast. And he's now lost three straight matches on grass. So I'm not sure he goes into Wimbledon with much of a head of steam at all, especially for an ATP number one who brings a, a wooden spoon to SW19 at this point. Thoughts on Rafa at all? No, I mean, I'm not really panicking at all uh, with Rafael Nadal. I think that the loss in, in Hollow is understandable, um, in many ways expected. I think that it's a good loss, not unlike Andy Murray at Queens that, you know, they played very tough. Uh, I mean, Murray had a, a really physically grueling French Open and made the semifinals. Rafa obviously had a really, I mean, physically tough uh, final in on Sunday um, and then turned around to Halle. So I'm not really like, ooh, problematic or anything for Rafa Nadal. Is he my favorite going into Wimbledon? No, but even if he won Halle, I, I don't know if I would put him as my favorite going into Wimbledon. I think he's just... You know, he's a guy who, not unlike a Serena at any major, make to the second week and you become my odds-on favorite, but whether or not you can get to that second week um, becomes a lot more difficult. So, I mean, in terms of looking at Rafa at Wimbledon, I'm much more um, concerned about what his draw looks like than what his lead-up results on grass look like. Yeah, I think that's generally true for almost everybody. I mean, we've seen in recent years that these lead-up tournaments on grass more than any other surface don't predict Wimbledon well at all. I mean, last year, Roger Federer won Halle and lost second round to Sergei Stokowski. The year before that, Andy Murray lost first or second round at Queen's Club and then went on to make the final of Wimbledon. I mean, so these things... In a lot of ways, doing well at, you know, I mean, obviously Murray was an exception last year because he won Queen's and won Wimbledon, but... And Halle's, and, and Federer's won Halle Wimbledon both. Right, yeah. Times. I mean, it's just, it's not that it's, like, opposite indicative. It's just not really an indicator one way or the other. It's just kind of like, okay, that's very nice for you. I mean, I will put more weight generally on performances that occur this week as opposed to next week. Like, I don't think the winners of Eastbourne and Rosemallen are going to be necessarily like, ooh, like that's going to change my analysis of what right. how they'll do in, I mean, Elena Vesnina won Eastbourne. Especially you know, Eastbourne because it feels like people are kind of bailing out of it. Yeah, they, they, they go, they have one, two matches, and they go back to, 
to uh, London. to London and, and and finish up their practice there and practice at Orangi and you know and things like that. So Eastbourne's a weird tournament because obviously you know it is kind of even though Birmingham is now a premier tournament, Eastbourne is the the one that gets the field, um, a much stronger field than the field that Birmingham as of right now has attracted. But like, I mean, when's the last legit champion of Eastbourne that you can think of? One who was who came in there as a favorite and took care of business. Yeah, not many. Well, not just that, but then like did really awesome at Wimbledon. Like, yeah, not many. I mean, Kvitova maybe didn't Petra win Eastbourne and then? Am I wrong on that? Did she win Eastbourne and then win Wimbledon? That might be right. Um, no, I think she made, made the final, final and lost to Bartoli. Okay. And then made the and then won Wimbledon. Yeah, something like that. But happened. I mean that that's a little bit more indicative, but. Um, yeah, it's a rare thing that you get, like, an Eastbourne champion that is memorable. Yeah, that's very fair. That might, all might change next year. We were talking a little bit about this uh, together before the show, about how next year the grass season moves to three weeks, and the middle week will be occupied by Hala and Queens on the men's side, which will both be upgraded to 500 events, which is very overdue for them because those are very stacked draws to be 250s. When you compare them to some of the other 250s that are out there, like a Bucharest or a, I don't know, Stockholm or, a, you know, insert random tournament here, then the middle week on the women's side will be occupied by Birmingham, which gets upgraded to a premier after having been an international uh, last year, was a premier this year. Didn't really feel like one at all. I think it's probably fair to say in terms of the draw. There were no top 10 players, which is pretty unheard of. For Premier uh, Ivanovich won, but it um, but didn't play anybody who usually have to beat on the way to a Premier title. When you think of the other Premiers on the calendar, something like a Brisbane, which had I think six or seven top ten players, uh, Charleston had a few and has generally had bigger champions. Uh, Courtney, you've been in Birmingham for several years now. You've seen this tournament sort of evolve. What do you make of this tournament's position on the calendar and where it's going and where it came from and where it is? This week, I guess. Well, I mean, this week it's just, I mean, I think in a lot of ways this was a trial run for them in terms of kind of being a premier level tournament. And obviously the draw is whatever the draw is, but, um, you know, logistically there are issues that you have to deal with when you upgrade from an international to premier level tournament. So in terms of the tournament running logistics, I think that that, that was really what this and this year was about for Birmingham. As Ben mentioned, it'll get the prime plush position of being in the middle week of the three-week break between the French Open and Wimbledon starting next year. And that's huge. And I think that, you know, bottom line is, like, put it, if you think of it this way, even Ivanovich said it this week, that she always plays, she never plays Eastbourne because she likes to go to the WTA party um, that's in London. She has pre... WTA uh, prom. Yeah, she has pre-tournament, um, pre-Wimbledon promotional stuff, sponsors sort of stuff to do as well. So that second week, which is currently occupied by Eastbourne, is problematic in a lot of ways. And you see people losing early to, to kind of show up to London and do all of their sponsor-related stuff. So Birmingham getting that middle position, if you think about like the top players that Birmingham is going to have to b- deliver as a premier level, t- or sorry, the WTA will have to deliver as a premier level tournament to Birmingham, meaning that they're probably going to, I can't remember what the rule is, it's three of the top ten, or three of the top five, or like right. Those rules should have kicked 10. in this year, so they'll have to pay a penalty right. sure. this year. Right, sure, exactly. But, and to be fair, I mean, yes, she didn't show up, but Yelena Yankovic was a top ten player who was in this draw. Right. So, but, you know, initially the field looked a lot better until 
the French Open. And Jeannie Bouchard pulled out, too. Exactly. So, yeah, so being in that middle, you can imagine down the road with an extended three-week break, a Sharapova playing this tournament again, a Lee Na playing in this tournament again, uh, Serena Williams, to the extent that she wants to play Wimbledon lead-up, would play this tournament over Eastbourne. Why yeah. would you want to play Eastbourne? There's no reason to. So this tournament, Birmingham, is, yeah, it's small potatoes and it's small beans right now, but um, in five years, I think that the landscape of the grass season will look very different and Birmingham will be the crown jewel of the WTA stretch. It's um, certainly set up to be that way. Yeah. And it's an interesting setup for it because, I mean, it's sort of this thing that a lot of the grass court tournaments have. It's not Wimbledon, obviously, because Wimbledon's a massive worldwide known thing. But Wimbledon qualifying is like this. Uh, Birmingham is like this. Eastbourne's kind of like it a little bit. The tournaments are sort of tucked off, like in these sort of suburban type settings, and they're away from hustle and bustle of the city. And if you're not trying to go there, it can be very hard to know that it's even there. I mean, there was very little evidence of this tournament being here in Birmingham, even when you were, like, two blocks away. When you were on that main street we took the bus on, there was no, like, come here for tennis. It was sort of on the on a need-to-know basis that the tournament was in town. And so we'll see if the tournament does grow, because, like you said, this is going to be the place to come. Now that there are going to be three weeks, someone, people like a Sharapova or a Serena who haven't played grass warms in a while if they want to add one so they don't have three weeks off to get cold uh birmingham will be the place to be or that second week uh if, or there's going to be a international in mallorca which maybe will have some uh appearance money to draw some top players as well so we'll see what happens with this it'll be it's interesting sort of to see the seed planted and nothing really having grown quite yet in terms of it because it's a small tournament just in terms of the main court i think seats uh 2,500, I believe, somewhere in that neighborhood, and one of the smallest premieres at this point. Anna Ivanovich was the winner in Birmingham this week. She's come here many times. It's her first grass court title. She beat Zalivova Stritseva in the final. It's her third title of the year. She leads the WTA this year with the most wins with 36. That's 37. 37 now. Courtney, I know you've followed Anna Ivanovich for a long time. What has made her 2014 so remarkable so far because it definitely is i don't think it would have been fair to expect this at the end of 2013 at all i mean i think more than anything i mean let's be honest the three titles that she's won have been smaller tournaments yeah she's won auckland she's won monterey and now she's won birmingham which was premier and technically her biggest title since french open 2008 but let's be honest she's had more impressive runs than that yeah um at tournaments since so you know, I mean, has she had to beat, like, crazy names and big names? No, not necessarily, but she has. Yeah. She's beaten Serena at the Australian Open. She beat Maria in Stuttgart, or not Stuttgart, in Madrid, or sorry, in Rome. So she has those big wins under her belt. So to me, what Anna's 2014 is, is basically that she believes in herself, that she's doing what she's supposed to be doing, that she's not suffering these shocking losses that she's not supposed to take. And... I think that's really the big difference between Anna 2014 and Anna, you know, mid-2008 until 2014, yeah. where it was like you never really knew what you were going to get when Anna Ivanovich took the court during that span of time. And right now, you kind of do. I mean, it, it, it's pretty, you know, you, you kind of tread lightly and cautiously to because you don't want to say it outright that she's quote-unquote reliable. But 
She's she kind of is. She's yeah. pretty darn reliable. I mean, even her loss at the French Open, obviously disappointing. But the track record was already there. There was a matchup issue against Safarova, five straight losses to her now. Um, it's, so technically, I don't, I don't consider that a bad loss. Um, Not when you've lost the last four to a player now. Right. You know, uh, Madrid... Obviously, I mean, she she beat Sharapova and then... Oh, sorry, in Rome, sorry. She beat Sharapova, lost to Serena, and took yeah. a set off Serena. So there's nothing... Not, no shame, no shame in, in that. that. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's just not... I mean, she made the Stuttgart final, lost to Sharapova. She's not really taking bad losses. She didn't have a great U.S. hardcourt swing until she, she got to Monterey. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty remarkable stuff. 37 wins for a player who, let's face it, for a long time struggled to win back-to-back matches. Yeah. Um, and I think in this situation with... Birmingham, what was interesting was that she came in as the top seed, and she said this earlier in the week, that the thing about the pressure of playing as a top seed is that you're, like anything less than the title is considered failure. Like, you can't walk away and be like, oh, but that was okay. Like, you know, like, whereas, like, okay, if you're the fourth seed and you lose the second seed, you can actually walk away and consider that a successful tournament. Right. So, and so knowing that and knowing that pressure, and let's face it, Anna Ivanovich over the course of the last six years has her greatest opponent has been herself. Like, she would succumb to pressure. She would choke. She would realize the enormity of situations and just blink so hard. And she didn't blink this week. And it's not that... I mean, yes, the competition wasn't top-notch, but she could have lost any one of those matches. And anybody who's watched Donna Ivanovich over the last six years knows that. So, you know, there's a lot to like about it. And I just was very, very impressed with the way that she played this week. I just thought she was striking the ball really well, hitting, you know, committed, being aggressive, getting very low on the ball, allowing her momentum to fall through on the ball. I just really liked how she was playing on grass. So it just, it didn't look like to me like it was a fluke or she was playing clay court tennis against like a bunch of like crappy grass court players and that's why she won the title. Like I was impressed by the way that she did it. So It was definitely impressive and it seemed like there are people, when you think about Ivanovic, you think of a, a tall, powerful player and the things that didn't make that click on grass were things that she seemed to at least be correcting now. Making point shorter, taking a little bit less swing on the Getting to the net. Getting to the net. Just different, just programming herself a little bit differently. And it was working. And she seems just more comfortable and more relaxed on court and off. I mean, impressed all week. She was very, very uh, happy and just seemed very comfortable. And I think her coach, uh, Nemanja, uh, who's Serbian, has had a lot to do with that. And she just seems very much at ease and happy and non-stressed and yeah. in a good place right now. Uh, also, a quick shout-out to Barbara Zalavova. Should have made the final here. Uh, if you've never seen Barbara play, we did her on uh, Take a Number last year, and Courtney started laughing uncontrollably. If you want to go back to that episode, I think it's like 61 or 62, 63, somewhere in that range. If you ever watch her, she's uh, a lot of fun. Sit near her coach if you're on outer court and you want to hear her express herself, uh, you can get some pretty choice gems. I appreciated that Barbara referred to herself as grumpy. <laughs> that was a good that word. That was pretty good. I was like, so it's oh, not a okay. big English second language no, word. No, no, it's not. But she, like, impressed. She was like, yeah, I got a little bit grumpy. It's like, oh, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty great. Um, and so good, I mean, she played solid tennis. Not spectacular tennis, but solid. We for Casey Delacqua also. Sam Sosa. Could be a, a dangerous flow to Stritz yeah. uh, you know, and Delacqua. Yeah. Both. Both of them, yeah. Um, Sam Sosa played better than usual on grass and then lost to Delacqua 2-2 two and two in the second and third. But, I mean, Sam, She was playing so well, though. She was. So she's someone to not write off as quickly as you might otherwise at Wimbledon. So let's 
look forward more towards Wimbledon. We got a bunch of questions from our dear listeners. Ready to tackle some, Courtney? Sure. All right, let's start with a question from Robert S. Robert, who is at Robert1993. He asks us, who has the most to lose this year on the men's and women's side at the Wimbledon? So who, I guess, oh, at Wimbledon. At Wimbledon, yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you meant like generally. Like, no, Ooh, not just like question. in life. Yeah. yeah. No, um, who has the most to lose at Wimbledon? Who are the stakes the highest for, I guess? Roger. Roger? Why? Because how many bites of the apple is he going to get? Um, you know, at Wimbledon, I think even in his own head, the way that he's talked about the tournament throughout this year, and even just even at, at the French after that really disappointing uh, loss to Golbis, um, was like, I got to get this out of my head. I got to think about Wimbledon. Like it's it's all it, it just feels like in his head, it's all about Wimbledon this year, and making a, a charge there. And he's had a he's had a good season. Um, Probably if you were to evaluate his season now compared to how it was being evaluated about two months ago, I think that the stock has dropped um, a little bit, but that's understandable because of Clay. Yeah. But there's not something to lose, but I think that Roger not, you know, making the semis at least at Wimbledon would be incredibly disappointing. That's a very fair answer. Um, my answer of the top players um, would be Djokovic and Serena just because they, both of them, Serena especially, yeah, Serena is definitely. not someone, if she goes three majors without losing, without winning a major, that's a huge failure for her with how much she has her eyes right now making history and how the sands are falling through the hourglass on her career because she's 32 at this point, not getting any younger or any more reliable, to use the Ivanovich adjective. Um, and so she needs to get these opportunities and strike while the iron is still warm enough and it could be start cooling pretty quickly and if i knowing how she judges her year i mean she's won three tournaments this year three pretty sizable ones to brisbane miami and rome and she still says we'll say her year has been a failure so far because she didn't go deep at the majors uh so i think the stakes are big for her djokovic same thing djokovic hasn't won any of the last five, five majors and that's for somebody who is points away from being number one feels like number one a lot of, in a lot of ways in just terms of power rankings and it being the least surprising when he wins um, anywhere but the French Open, obviously, for Rafa. Uh, for Djokovic not to have won a major in this long is also really uh, puzzling and worrying for him. So I would say that on the outside, obviously, pure rankings-wise, Yerzy Yanovitz and Sabine Lisicki and Kirsten Flipkins a little bit have huge caches of points. But yeah, I mean, Lissicki, you're looking up. at a situation where she might not be seated at the U.S. Open. I oh, mean, like, Yanovitz, too. Yeah, yeah, Yanovitz, too. But at least... Flipkins, yeah. even, also. Maybe. Flipkins, as well. Yeah, no, those are yeah, definitely... Those are the three kind of big names that, that jump out. But but particularly Yanovitz and Lissicki, because I feel like they they are more relevant players than yeah. Flipkins. So to see them tumble down um, and what that means for them mentally and... You know, and, and and I'm very curious to see what if if Lisicki does crash out at Wimbledon, mentally, what her career like where her head is at, because I feel like since Wimbledon last year, she still has had a bit of that Wimbledon swagger. Like yeah, but I made a Slam final, kind of thing, and she's been obviously seated at almost any tournament that she's at, and you right. know whatever top twenty and things like that. So. I'm curious what happens if, if her ranking plummets dramatically. And she's that, had excuses. She's had excuses. Um, she will let you know those excuses. But, yeah, and I'm, I'm just curious, like, if it, you know, for a lot of players, like, the big tumble is where th- what forces them to kind of make changes or 
realize that the way that they're doing things is, is maybe not the best way. And maybe the partnership with Hingis is not the best um, for her. Yeah. I don't think that that's a really great coaching situation for Lissiki. And I feel like she does actually need somebody to go in there and crack the whip and to be like a legit coach. And, and if you think about for Lissiki, the her two main coaches have been her dad and Hingis. Yeah. Neither of whom are going to, are in a position to like be like a, an objective, a hard ass coach. And so, you know, I think all the tools are there for Sabine, but I think that she does need some sort of like external motivation. And that's right. And I also, let's, one more person I should mention on that front is Andy Murray. Andy Murray's going to be the most talked about player going to Wimbledon, defending his title, uh, facing the British press again. And the way it's being positioned already is that anything but a title defense is somehow a failure. Um, I don't think either of us expects him to defend his no. title. I wouldn't be shocked. It I wouldn't be shocked. But I wouldn't be shocked, but it's not a fair... not choose I mean, him to do no, it. No, I mean, because he hasn't made a final this year. Yeah. And he hasn't really come close to make, making a final this year that I can And he's remember. got a lot on his mind. <laughs> he's got a, what, What's on his mind these days? He's got ladies and chaps and... <laughs> <laughs> okay, explain lady chap. Lady chap? Ex- explain that whole situation as far as we know. Because we weren't in Queens. We weren't in Queens. It would have been a very interesting week to be in Queens because of the Murray Moresmo, a.k.a. Moresmo. It doesn't sound, actually, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work, work out loud. Orally, it just sounds like yeah. Amelie. Um, Amelie and Andy uh, pairing uh, up. Amdy. Amdy. Or Andaly. Andaly? Andaly. Andaly, Andaly. Anyway, <laughs> that current coaching partnership. What did you make of the way it has been received and scrutinized so far? I don't know. I mean, at this point, I kind of have Andali fatigue. Because yeah. I'm just, like, sick and tired of it being made an issue. You're right? like a Reba, a Reba I know. I'm just like, Jesus Christ. Like, I mean, I thought that Andy Murray did an impeccable job fielding the incessant inquiries yeah. about it. I thought that everything that he said was perfect. Um, you know, if you haven't seen the interview that he gave with BBC, um, kind of initially when he explains the hire, it's fantastic. Um, but yes, he, you know, and even just like apparently a reporter asked him in his press at Queens, you know, whether or not there were, um, I don't have the quote specifically in my head, but, um, whether or not there were advantages to having a lady as opposed to a chap in your corner. And Andy was like, lady and chap? man and woman let's just go with that and I just thought that was he didn't have to do that Andy Murray he could he knows what the question was asking but for him to go out of his way to kind of be like what like you know I can imagine him saying doing it too because he could it was sort of like roll like yeah. lady and chap like he'll think that he'll like sort of roll around in his mouth yeah. and be like ah, no no <laughs> let's not man and woman uh, so I I thought that uh, that was great and that just goes back to you know I think I said this in the last podcast I just think that what has been really like Andy Murray to me should be commended for like, not just, I mean, the decision is the decision and like whatever and the hiring, but he hasn't just defended it. He's embraced it. Like, and he's kind of used it to go out of his way to kind of fight these sexist views of the world, whether or not they're like obvious sexism or, you know, just kind of latent sexism. It's just like under, you know, and, 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 like, lady and chap? Like, that's just weird. And I think it illustrates a little bit how much different it is for him doing this in Britain compared to if it was 
top American men's player. And let's be clear, we don't have a top American men's player right now off the level of an Andy Murray, but we were thinking about if Andy Roddick had done it, if Andy Roddick had hired someone like, um, i trying to think who would be the right... Analog. Um, analog. Let's say he'd hired, I don't know, Chris Everett when he was in his prime or something like that. I don't think it would have raised quite as many hackles or... Oh, that's impossible. How could you have a lady coaching a doesn't know anything about the chat? It wouldn't game. have been met. It wouldn't have been met with skepticism, other than does, does she know how to coach? Does she? Like, it would be like kind right. of more for tennis reasons. And that's actually what I thought was interesting. I talked to a few players about it this week, and one person I talked to about it was uh, Kamiko Date Chrome, and that was her reaction to it. it. Was like, I think it's a great hire. I don't know what Amelie's coaching t- techniques are like. Like, and she was just like, "Is Amelie a good coach?" Nothing about the whole like their genitalia doesn't match right. like which i think is the overtone of a lot of stuff and was at least before Amelie got hired i think a lot of the british press as soon as it did go um did go official that he was hiring her changed their tune fairly quickly yeah. um because like all of a said, sudden it was a genius all hire. of a sudden it was perfect <laughs> and why wouldn't why wouldn't anyone think of this um but when we were in the room when we were talking about it, we said this last show too there's a lot a lot of eye rolling and scoffing and skepticism and whatever so like we said, we don't know if it'll be a success or not, but I do think it a little bit makes the magnifying glass on Murray's Wimbledon preparation different. It's a different sort of, I want to say scapegoat, but it's a different uh, arrival to the tournament than he might have there's had. There's a lot of stuff going otherwise. on. There's, and, a, there's and, a fair amount going on, yeah. You know, and I think I would be surprised if there's not some part of Andy Murray that isn't concerned, like, you know, about that, about, like, is he going to be damage Amelie Moresmo's reputation is he going to put her in a situation where everybody's going to point at her and be like she's the reason because she you know you lost you lost us Wimbledon yeah exactly the day we lost Wimbledon because of that bitch yeah, <laughs> pretty much yeah oh, 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 oh. Um, <laughs> yeah so you know I mean yeah. I, I Andy Murray is a human being like I, I, I that would be a natural kind of stress to kind of feel like you have that that you're taking this on yourself at the same time, I do think that that's also something that, like, would totally motivate him. Like, you know, to, like, win it, like, with Amelie in the box. But anyways, it's uh, it's interesting. But, yeah, no, I, I don't really think it's a big deal if Andy Murray doesn't defend Wimbledon. That's why I didn't put him on my list. But There you go. I would agree. I think it's not a fair expectation. I think you can go out there and hope that he competes well and does stuff. But even if he loses, like, quarters, even if he loses to, like... I'm trying to think of who's a... F- if he loses, it's like Ravrinka in the quarters or something. That could be a t- potential yeah. quarter, even though they're going to kind of flip in the rankings and seedings based on the grass formula. Um, Stan's career even record Burdick grass is shocking. Yeah, whatever. a Burdick. A Burdick might do it. Yeah. Um, or a Raonic, if Raonic zones for yeah. whatever reason. But yeah. Or a few people who could zone and do it. Um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, but like, I don't think we're putting the stakes quite so high for him. Um, I mean, it took them 77 years to do it. Like, why are they all of a sudden assuming that, like, it's going to be done again? Right. <laughs> it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Fair. <laughs> this is from uh, Rocco Crohanesy. Rocco Crohanesy. Hello, Rocco. Who says, outside the... Rocco, Rocco, indeed. Um, outside the top 32, who do you see making a possible run at Wimbledon? Who would you have your eye on of the dangerous floaters what's a run a run i would say is second week if you're outside top 32 yeah and i'll remind you that some of the people who would have been correct answers to this question last year would include the likes of lukash kubo adrian manorino right 
uh, you're Kenny scared of it. Kenny DeShepard, good God. Karen, Karen Knapp, Monica Puig. Last year's woman was weird. Camilla Georgie. Yeah. Okay. I feel like she's always the answer. Like, if you talk about, like, an unseated player who could do something major, isn't it always Georgie? She's so much better than her ranking. Yeah, I mean, it's like not... Her best even... is so much better than her Yeah, ranking. exactly. And, and, and on grass, she can totally do it. Done it before. Yeah. 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 So I'm going to go Camilla. Solid answer. I would probably go... I'm just going to pull up the rankings here just to cheat a little bit. I'll say... Um, I'll say Leighton Hewitt. Uh, randomly, I think Leighton Hewitt is really tries to peak for Wimbledon. I feel like it's where he thinks he has the best chance. Um, he had a great win over Vavrinka first round last year, and then didn't back it up and lost to Dustin Brown in the second round. Uh, but Leighton Hewitt really, I think, could wouldn't be a shock if he found a, a hole in the draw. And like, obviously, caveat: the draw's not out. He could get you know Djokovic first round and be out of here quickly. But he can find space in the draw and make quarters. I could see. Pretty easily. Other names I'll throw out there include Lucas Russell, I think, obviously, is always a threat on grass, given what he showed that us that one particular time. And <laughs> In one particular match. Or particular match. And, yeah, that's about it. And, you know, um, I don't, I'm tempted to say, okay, Dustin Brown. Dustin Brown is here. He beaten it all. He can make a deep run if he gets totally his act disagree. together. Best and of five, dude. Best want, of five. Do you want me to just want me to tell you a worse answer? Bernard Tomic. You're picking Tomic. I'm saying he could make really the second week. Yeah. No, he can't. I'm saying it definitively. Okay. Bernard Tomic cannot make the second week of Wimbledon. Whatever he does, it'll be entertaining. Sure. That's a different statement. But I no, I think that those are no. I would definitely not. I would definitely not sign on with Atomic. I think he'll crash out in the first or second round. Uh, who was the other one that you said that I was about to Dustin buzz? Brown. Dustin Brown, no. Best of five. Can't do it. Not back-to-back matches. Nope. Uh, Some other names I'll throw out there on the women's side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peronkadonk. Sure. Uh, Risk. Sure. Keys. Sure. Delacqua. Sure. Garcia. Mm, not on grass. Okay. Tomjanovic? I don't know what her she's yeah, like on Yeah, I don't... Grass. It's not... It's not great. Okay. Vekic. Maybe. Good, maybe. Benchich. Uh, Benchich. Benchich won junior women last yeah, year, so that's no reason. Benchich. Oh, Taylor Townsend Taylor got a wild Townsend, card. Yes. So that could good be good. Good on you, All England Club. That was very Appreciate solid. Appreciate it. Uh, Stritz have already mentioned. Uh, uh, anybody else? Scrolling, scrolling. Coco Vandoy actually played pretty well the one match I saw of her. She's somebody who, if her game clicks, grass will help her out a lot in terms of shortening rallies and helping her serve. Is she not the one two years ago that double faulted on a match that was suspended, like, literally on match point? Yeah. She came out, double faulted, and the match was over. <laughs> that did that did happen. You're remembering that correctly. Um, so, yeah. So, we'll say that. Um, so, yeah, there's some people. Uh, no clear, like, siren marking Dark Horse this year. I think the rankings are getting better and better reflective of who's actually doing what these days, so... I do like the, um, on the women's side, I do like Block was a choice. Yeah. She's playing really, really well. There we go. Good picks. Question's pleasingly simple, even though, um, even though it's not relevant to anything per se. Uh, Robert Wood, Raybob10, asks a few words on Dennis Istman. He should be better than he is. He should be ranked higher than he is. I agree. He's a good player. He's underachiever, I think, for yeah, his game. Yeah, I agree. I he agree. has a lot of raw weapons. 
and should be doing bigger things. And he's one of those people, if he made the quarters of Wimbledon, I would not be shocked. Sure. He's a, he's a little bit like a poor man's Okay, poor Gulbis. man's Niemannen. Oh, I don't know about Niemannen. Eh, maybe. Just like a balanced game, good tennis player. Doesn't win matches. Yeah. Yeah, fair. That's fair. Um, and that's your Dennis Sisteman corner. <laughs> and there's Dennis Sisteman. And this has been uh, Uzbek for you. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Kevin, three games to love, asks, which is your favorite grasp tournament aside from Wimbledon and why? I think it's not Queen's Club. It's not Queen's Club for me. Um, um, my answer is Hala. Yeah, I could, I, I've never been to Hala, so I can't say, but I would assume that my answer would be Hala if I went to Hala, because uh -huh. I love Germany and it's beautiful, uh, the tournament, and it's a great field, and puts together good matches, so I would assume that it would be Hala if I'd ever been. They have a roof, which is nice. I mean... I really like Eastbourne. Um, the conditions are not great. It can be really cold. It can be very windy. Um, so it's not really pleasant when the weather's not great. But when the weather's nice, like, like as you're walking on the lawn, like, on the grass, it's the same grass that they're playing on. In other words, like, you're walking and the court is literally set up, like, on one to the right, one to the left. Um, it's, like, fenced off a little bit. Like a right. And so people are just kind of, like, sitting there, like... These old ladies, they're sitting there in their little chairs, drinking tea, and eating out of their little picnic baskets. They're having the time of their life. I like it. I like the vibe It's very of chill. Eastbourne. Very yeah. chill. So I would say Eastbourne. It's, it, Eastbourne, based on how British people approach it, seems like it's a nice place to die. Fair enough. There you go. Um, just based on the median age of the attendance being about 88. I'm not one to rip on people who are paying to go to tennis tournaments. No. So I'm not going to say anything. No. Sean Taylor asks us, what, what's going on with Songa this year? And do you think he needs a new coach? And can he rebound and turn his year around? And I will expand year in this question to career. He's old. Because I think Songa missed his window, missed the exit. And it's like the Pennsylvania Turnpike, where you, if you, you know, miss your exit, you're completely screwed. You have to go 60 miles and pay the toll again. It's horrible. Don't miss your exit on Pennsylvania Turnpike. Side note. Um... Is Sangha have any chance of winning a major anymore or fulfilling a potential we all thought he had? It's up to him. I'm not convinced that right now Joe Wilfred Sangha is entirely engaged in his career. Okay. I think that there are motivation issues. I think there, you know, there are just, yeah, like mentally, physically, whether is he putting in the tough, the hard yards? I mean, let's remember the guy who kind of really helped get him into a position where he was playing really, really good tennis consistently was Roger Rashid, who's now with Grigor Dimitrov. And Roger Rashid is one heck of a motivator. He's getting results from Dimitrov. And he's getting results from Dimitrov. And, and to me, Sangha is kind of in that weird space of like, I travel the world, win a few matches, I've got good support from my federation. It's still popular. I'm still popular. Everybody kind of loves me. I go about my business, and I'm living an okay life. And that's not the attitude that you have if you actually want to win things. Yeah. So that's that's my assessment of Joe Wilford's Zonga. Harsh, but fair. Mm. Um, that's my tagline. There you go. <laughs> Tyler Green asks us, how many more Wimbledons will Venus play in in singles? Oh, why would I be sad? Two. Two? I think two is probably the right answer. This year or next year? Yeah. Yeah, And if I would take the under if I had to be forced yes. to pick. Um, so this would be an interesting time for Venus because she missed Wimbledon last time. 
with the back injuries she sustained, or at least aggravated, during her epic first round against Ula Radwanska at the French Open proceeding. Um, lost early in the French, seemed healthy, and her loss to Schmidlova. This is, I think, the stake, in tar- terms of stakes, stakes are high for Venus at Wimbledon, in the sense that she knows she doesn't get many shots left, and she knows this is the best conditions for her to still make a deep run at a major. And she's one of those people, I think she will be just barely seated, so I didn't include her in the dangerous floater category. I might be wrong about that, she but is. I think she will be. Right. Yeah. So, but if not, I mean, she is somebody who can easily get the right draw and click and make quarters. She's also somebody who can spray the ball everywhere and lose to just about anybody in yep. the first two rounds. So she hasn't made second week of a major in a long time. Not she's an unreliable. Yeah, she's so unreliable right now. And But her best is still great, and we hope we see more of it. But um, who knows? Only she knows what her motivation is to keep going if the results don't uh, continue or don't start emerging because at this rate I can't imagine I can't think she it's can fun. be fun and she had the result the title in in Dubai. Dubai which I think will keep her afloat a little bit longer at least for the rest of this year um, but yeah other than that I don't know Marvin Thomas asks us which of the top seeds will lose earliest I will pick Stan Wawrinka and Lena. I Which is pick, the same answer as the French Open, I realize. I will pick Stan Wawrinka and Victoria Azarenka. Okay, that's a good answer. <laughs> and what, what, do you make, what do you make of Vika's coming back on grass here? Because we saw the first of her in a few months um, since the very bizarre showing she had at Indian Wells um, where she really didn't look fit to play at all in terms of her foot and was kind of braving through it, through it for unclear reasons. Um, she came back today to play the Rally for Bali, the Queen's Club event. Um, we were both watching that on the stream uh, she'll be getting, she got a wild card into Eastbourne, so that's where her official tournament comeback will be. Uh, what is, what do you expect from Victoria Azarenka? I clearly expect her to lose, but... I, yeah, I expect nothing. I'm very surprised to see her trying to play on grass. Just mentally, I think it's, it's a, it's a dicey proposition given that, that horrible fall she had last year here. That basically knocked her out of the tournament. Yeah. Um, and that fall really kicked off the string of injuries that she ended up having. You know, that was a knee. Then it turned into, and she had obviously a good hard court season and fatigue and then her back um, and everything and then the foot. And it's just been bad after bad after bad. If I'm Victoria Azarenka, I mean, obviously I haven't talked to her. I don't know like what her situation is. Hopefully she's 100%. If not, I don't understand why you come back on grass of all surfaces where movement is key and balance and it's slippery and it's potentially kind of dangerous. You trust your movement. You have yeah. to really trust your body and your movements. Not her greatest surface. Why not just wait until the hard courts, I guess, is is my question. But hopefully, ideally, her return means she's 100%. That she does trust her movements. That she wants to work out a bit of rust before she, she takes on the, the U.S. hard courts where she has a lot of points to defend and she doesn't have much to defend here on grass. Nope. So maybe it feels like a pressure-free kind of dry run. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that that's really tough to, you know, be off this tour for so long and then take the court again on a surface where you really seriously injured yourself. I don't know. Victoria Azarenka is probably undoubtedly mentally stronger than I am. But even for me, like, secondhand, I'm like, dude, that's dicey. Yeah, very fair. I would pretty much cut on most of that. I just think that question marks are there. But she's somebody who, if she gets a match or two in Eastbourne, and survives the early rounds. She can get back into rhythm, I think, relatively quickly. 
if things go right for her, but there are a lot of potential pitfalls in terms of slipperiness, in terms of lack of confidence, in terms of being seen as vulnerable, in terms, in terms of, of her, overall fitness. Her serve was not doing well before she got hurt this last time. Yeah, so, I mean, well, I have no idea what she's playing like. No one really knows on the, on the tour because she's been offline for so long. Next question comes from Sako, a.k.a. Yohamishi. Uh, Sako asks us, will Maria Sharapova spend more time on court or in her pop-up store over the fortnight, and will Grigor outlast her this year? So I'll take the second question first. Who goes further at Wimbledon, Grigor or Maria? And pop-up store if you want to. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Uh, first <laughs> you of always all, put it on me as first. So first I'm of all, okay, I don't think she'll spend much time in her pop-up store. I think she'll show up there once and then not be back. So I think even if she's this first round, the on-court is a safe bet for that one. And overall, I think I like her more in a slam, coming in relatively rested, not playing a warm-up event, than Grigor, who's still... A largely unreliable quantity in best of five. So I'll pick Maria out last Grigor. But I will say I really enjoy watching her in her wag role in the stands looking completely miserable and then really happy when he finally wins the tournament. So I hope to get lots of Pova crowd shots because seeing her trying to be incognito is amusing to me. Which she tried to do last year when he was out on court. 18 and she was like in the crowd and I was like how did she even get there because it's not like there's like protected seating out on court 18 she was just like in the middle of the crowd yeah. which was very amusing um I'm actually picking Grigord out last uh, Maria oh Maria hasn't made it aside from that final against Petra she hasn't made it past the fourth round at Wimbledon since I want to say 2006 so that's a really long time and she's <laughs> just I mean I my whole thing with Sharapova is that it's like it's very easy for, to just fall into the trap of thinking, oh, yeah, she's really good on grass. Like, there's actually, other than that 17-year-old, like, win and making it the final against Kvitova, there's, like, no real reason to think that she's reliable on this surface at all. She made the Olympic final. Yeah, I don't really, I don't count it. Okay. Yeah, no. I, mean, I don't think, but, okay, if, even if you're saying she won't get past the round of 16, mm-hmm. I don't think Grigor's a lock to get that far either. I think, I think, I'm, I, I'm not saying he's a lock, but I think that if I were to bet, I would bet on Grigor making it further. Um... On Grigor, speaking of him, what do you make of the way he is being covered recently? And by that, I mean sort of the the camera being stuck on the ball girls during his matches, the general sort of... For me, I I think I tweeted this earlier, it almost has a Kornikova-type vibe to it for Grigor. He seems to be really being treated as a a pin-up. Yeah, and I have no problem with it, so long as... Like, it's what I said the other day, or on Twitter, as one who has to go through the photo wire all the time and to see the pictures that the apparently photographers feel is okay to put about the girls, like the number of times I've seen Maria Sharapova's ass cheek as she's taking the ball out of her pocket, like, please. Like, there are pictures from the French Open final that are just of Maria Sharapova's legs mm-hmm. that are on Getty. I mean, it's shocking. So, I mean, the girls get objectified and it's going to happen. I have no problem if they want to objectify the guys. I mean, if what I tweeted the other day was like, look, for as much as like... You know, I've seen how the women, when two hot girls play each other, I expect many upskirt photos of the Grigor Dimitrov, Feliciano Lopez final. They're good-looking guys. Go for it. I don't care. Objectify them. Did he get what you wished for? Hmm? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, Oh, well. But I I just, I don't know. It annoys the shit out of me, but it is what it is, and I'm all about equality. I'm not going to try and change it and make people be like, no, treat 
Maria Sharapova like she's a professional athlete and stop treating her like she's like some glamour girl or model because obviously she trades on that as well. That's a big reason why she is who she is. But yeah, I mean, if they want to sell Grigor Dimitrov as being like, you know, tennis's answer to One Direction, fine. There you go. So long as he, so long as he wins. You have to keep winning. That's you have to keep and winning. He is winning a lot right now. He's obviously, obviously Kornikova, I think, is largely underrated because she was a top 10 player. Um, but he is getting results. This was his fourth title in eight, eight months that he won in Queens. So he's delivering uh, the goods. Parting thoughts? Wishes we're going to do another show when the Wimbledon draw comes out. What are you hoping and wishing for from that draw as we sort of say goodbye to this part of I the want, show? I mean, I want to see what we saw at the French Open. I, I want to see some blockbuster first-rounders. I want to see some interesting potential quarterfinals and, and fourth-round matches You know, early on for both the men and the women. And, um, and you want to see maybe they're not blockbuster like on paper, you know, like, ooh, big names or whatever, because usually those end up being stupid. Like, if Rod- if Leighton Hewitt and Roger Federer play each other in the first round of Wimbledon, it'll be blown up way out of proportion, and it's going to be a stupid match. I'm sorry, yeah, but it will fair. be. But, like, you know, not a- not unlike, like, Sam Wawrinka drawing Guillermo Garcia-Lopez at the French Open. I mean, like, yeah, the- nobody really cares about that, but, like, looking at it and being like, you know what, that is dangerous. And I would like to see, like, a few more of those, like, this time around at Wimbledon. Um... But you know what? At the same time, I just really don't want another wacky Wimbledon. I would love... Not wacky Wimbledon. I just don't want another wacky Wednesday. In other words, if all of these upsets happen over the course of two weeks, totally down. But I cannot do it all in one day ever again. So let's not do that. I still have PTSD from that day. I think we all do in the tennis media Mm -hmm. just because of how much it fell apart so quickly and so out of controlly and everything about it. Um, It's been one year since then. Let's hope doesn't happen again um and we'll leave it at that as always thank thank you guys for listening to us you can follow us when you're not listening to us all sorts of fun ways you can like us on facebook facebook.com slash ncr podcast and also follow us on twitter at ncr underscore tennis and subscribe to us and like us on itunes or whatever your podcast app of choices on your phone or your computer or whatever kids today are using to listen to people talk um as we close out the show courtney there was a song that you said you thought would be appropriate to end this episode so can you explain why i can so throughout this week uh the press room in birmingham is relatively small but in order to assist the transcriptionist our good friend julie who we love but um in order to in order to assist julie um you need to use a microphone so even though the player can hear you you need to do it so that the, the transcriptionist can hear the voice clearly in her ear so that she can correctly transcribe everything. So every single time there was a press conference, we would just kind of be back, like kind of talking with this mic and, you know, like kind of holding it. And Anna Ivanovich would come into the press room for her post-match interviews. And about maybe like after her second or th- second win or something like that, we were joke. I think before she came in, we were joking about Ben singing into the microphone and then when Anna came in, I kind of was like, yeah, Ben's going to sing a song. And she's like, oh, really? Like, what song are you going to sing? And then Ben was, like, all shy or whatever. Like, no, 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 like, you tell me. And so then it became this thing. Of I like, take requests. Yeah, exactly. You did. You said, like, I'll take requests. And Anna kind of started laughing. And then I said, well, how about this? If you win the tournament, Ben will sing. And she's like, okay, let's do that. So sure enough, Anna won the tournament. And so we come into press. 
And right before she had come into press, we were obviously kind of already talking about it. And we were joking about all the different songs that Ben might sing or might be suggested. Before Anna was in the room. Before Anna was in the room. And we actually mentioned the Serbian Eurovision winner from 2007, Molitva. If you don't know this song, go look it up. It is amazing. It is my favorite Eurovision song winner of all time. Um, But yeah, so... Yeah, so we were joking about it. So then Anna gives her press conference, and it's all done, and like everybody's kind of standing up. And it was it might have been me that sold you down the river on this one, <laughs> but I'm, I like because Anna was still saying something to me, and I was like, oh, Ben was gonna sing. I was like, you won. Ben has to sing, and she's and her eyes like lit up. She's like, oh my gosh, yeah, you have to sing. So it became this whole thing of like, what song? So then we were like, well, you get to request the song. And she's like, well, you know, there's this Serbian song from Eurovision. And we were like, oh, my gosh, really? It was so random that she picked this. And also that she requested that I sing a song that's not in English. (laughs) I don't know if she thought I spoke Serbian. I don't. I can listen to Serbian and say, that sounds nice. But producing it myself, not something I've ever tried to do, honestly, except for maybe mimicking like an IJ occasionally. Um, I usually Iday, whatever, or an Imo, or Edemo, or uh, Yankovic as Edemo, or something. Um, yeah, no, it's not something I do. But then she was like, there, it's like, you should sing Wollivan. I was like, okay. And he did. And so and- someone else in the room, uh, Roz, had a phone that had the MP3 of the song, and so... I don't know what the words are for the verses. I know, like, the title. And Anna didn't know the words Anna either. didn't know the words either. And Anna also refused to sing along with me. So we were just kind of there, like, trying to listen. And and obviously, or not obviously, but uh, less than ideally for me, like, suddenly 20 photographers arrived and thought this was a magical moment to capture on film. And we're all taking photos of it. And thankfully, very few videos, as far as I can tell, because that's much more incriminating. Um and, yeah, so I tried to sing. I think she was relatively a place with the rendition. She was. But and it, say... it was actually very cute because Anna was, like, very... She was totally game. She was cracking jokes because we were saying... We were saying... She was like, no one will ever hear me sing. Yeah. And then we were saying, but you sang, like, Molitva during the... the, the um, when the Serbs were on the balcony. When the Serbs were on the balcony at the end of 2008, like, uh, you know, and whatever, um, when they were welcomed home. And she's like, no, 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 no. Yelena and Novak sang it. And she was like mimicking. She's like, I was off to the side. And as they sang, I just kept stepping away and away farther and, away and farther and farther away. away. And it was very kind of funny. And then after it was all said and done, as Ben has kind of really put all shame aside and done this for there's Anna never, to hold the no bet. There's no shame to start with. There's no clear. shame. This is what's amazing about Ben. But like she was like trying to do an interview and she was like, oh my gosh, I'm sweating. <laughs> like she was the one that was like, she was like, I'm sweating. Like she's like sweating profusely. Um, but it was very funny. But it was, it was, it was a fun week with Anna. I have to say she was in a very, very good relaxed. mood. She was cracking a lot of jokes, like pre-press and post-press, like just like would sit down and just kind of crack a joke and yeah. Low pressure good. week. Everyone's in a good mood. Yeah. It was good to see her there, and it was a pleasure to serenade her thusly. I'll leave it to the professional uh, Maria Serifovich in this song. That's all I know. You didn't join in when we were singing. I did. Whenever oh, ta- every time Molly Vaughn came on, I Which tried to help. Which was not as much as it should be. No. Um, so we'll... I'll actually start with the beginning of the song, because that's how it worked on the thing, just so you can hear like the non-title parts of the Serbian I had to wade through in front of this crowd of people. And like I said, do, if she requested anything in English, I would have been right there. Uh, so hopefully next time. This will never, there'll never be next time. What am I talking about? <laughs> what if she wins Wimbledon? <laughs> if she wins Wimbledon, I will know, I'll learn the entire Serbian version. How there about that? That's a good plan. And that'll be her award. That's big incentive, Anna. Big, huge, massive incentive. 
Um, I kind of hope you don't want to Wimbledon now. Not I'm also kind of hoping you didn't listen to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but Fair. There you go. Uh, um, thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next time. 12 points to you, etc. Bye. Nijon kada sklopim Postelja prazna Terasan A život se topi I nestaje brzo Kod lanom od lan Ko razum da kupim Jer stvarnosti Ne primećujem Još uvek te ljubim Još uvek ti slepo verujem Ko luda Ne znam kuda Ljubavi se nove a dane žive rane više ne brojim Molitva kao žar na mojim usnama je Molitva nas da reči samo ime tvoje Nebo znam kao ja koliko puta sam ponovila to Baš kao ja, da je ime tvoje